This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. You shouldn't settle for just any old pair of leggings. You deserve something better, something designed with you in mind, like the new Inspire leggings by Kalia. Their most versatile collection yet, made for any workout. They're lightweight, buttery soft, breathable, and made with lycra adaptive fiber, which molds to your body for a barely there supportive fit. It's perfect for wherever your wellness routine takes you. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Hello, I'm Kellyanne Taylor from Radio Times, and this is View From My Sofa, the podcast where every week I sit down with the stars of TV to talk about all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch? And who do they watch with? Expect fascinating insights into my celebrity guests' TV habits. What shows do they binge? What do they snack on? What do they loathe? And who really controls the remote on their sofa? This week's guest is the reality TV star turned documentary maker, Zara McDermott. First appearing on our screens in 2018 as a bombshell on Love Island, she's appeared on E4's Made in Chelsea and hosted her own dating show, Love in the Flesh. Zara released a documentary for the BBC on revenge porn, which unflinchingly investigated the impact of the unauthorised sharing of explicit images and helped change the law in the UK. Since then, she's made a documentary on rape culture and most recently, disordered eating. In this episode, Zara talks to me about how working in government gave her the confidence to speak her mind, how she handles unpacking her own trauma and her love of Gossip Girl. Please be aware that our conversation includes content about eating disorders, sexual abuse and revenge porn. Zara McDermott, welcome to View From My Sofa. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Now, I want to start off with what is the view from your sofa? Talk me through your living room setup. I actually have, we have like two TV areas downstairs. One of them is like our little kind of snug. We've got a fireplace. We've got some warm lighting. You know, we actually just did our house up really recently. So we've got that little area. 
and then I can shut the doors on Sam if he's watching <laughs> football and stuff. And we've got one in the kitchen, which is right by the back doors, nice in the summer. So we've kind of both got our own little spots downstairs, which is nice. Um, so yeah, view from my sofa is is really nice. We, we're sitting in the living room a lot at the moment because obviously it's winter. We want the fire on, you know, snuggle up, watch a movie. <laughs> yeah. And what have you been enjoying watching recently on telly? To be honest, I feel like when you work in telly, you don't watch it as much. <laughs> like I spend most of my time thinking about what I'm doing rather <laughs> than watching it. Um, but to be honest, I've been watching a bit of The Handmaid's Tale. I say a bit. I've watched one episode. But I, I'm, I've been saying to myself, I need to like stop work early and watch an episode of The Handmaid's Tale because I, I love that show. Um, yeah, I'm loving that at the moment. I watched it with my flatmate and we kind of watched series one religiously together and then we got on to series two and she was like nope too gruesome and so we went to love island <laughs> that's the same as me no i'm either like handmaid's tale some kind of dark drama or you know i really like um any kind of like true crime murder mystery or it's made in chelsea or like yeah. anyway is Essex. I've, I, there's no in between for me. <laughs> it's got to be the polar opposite. Yeah. Um, is there a series that you come back to time and time again? Gossip Girl. Oh my God. <laughs> Iconic. We love to see it. I think I've watched it seven times. Genuinely, I, I've watched it so many times. And I think that was probably in the space of about three years as well. When I was like in my teens. I love Gossip Girl. Absolutely love it. It is iconic. It is. And it's one of those shows that stay with you. And I think it does inform some of your character. I definitely had that as well with Sex in the City, where I felt like some part of me became Carrie Bradshaw when I was watching the show. And I was like, <laughs> Yeah, I was actually like, why am I not rich living on the Upper East Side? So unfair. <laughs> so true. Are you a fan of reality TV? And if so, which are your favorite shows? Yes. Um, I probably to be fair, thinking about it, like what I will chuck on when I'm getting ready or I'm eating is usually an easy watch reality TV. So it's usually the Kardashians, to be honest, I love, I'll just chuck on E and and there'll be a Kardashians episode on, um, all the new ones, or I do like The Only Way is Essex, Made in Chelsea, Love Island, all of that. I'm, I'm, a ma- I'm massively into those. They're just easy watches. Mm. We usually do this right at the end of the show, but seeing as you're a reality TV fan, I'm going to put your knowledge to the test with our music quiz. I'll play you three theme tunes from reality TV shows and you have to guess which programme it is. Round one. I'm a celebrity. Fantastic. Number two. Made in Chelsea. Okay, third one is a curveball. Let's see if you get this. This was one of my favourite lockdown watches. Oh, Gemma Collins show. I, I love the Gemma, Gemma Collins show. <laughs> it's so good. I, I genuinely think I watched it through like four times. In I lockdown. love the bit where she goes to the caravan park. She's like, I'm not going here. I'm not, go- I'm booking myself into a hotel. I'm not going here. Honestly, <laughs> she's so brilliant. That woman is an icon. Now you've passed the music round with flying colours. Let's talk about your own experience filming reality TV shows. Did you watch your own appearance on Love Island? Um, I watched 
I watched my whole appearance on Love Island the second I came out. I literally watched the whole thing back the day after. No, the same day. Literally, I got home. I landed. It was a really weird experience. I landed back home. My Both my parents were at work. I got dropped off at my house. And I was just like in my house on my own, like my, my family home. Like, what on earth has just happened? And I just went, went onto the sky. Obviously, my parents have recorded the whole thing. And I just watched my parts through straight away. Never watched it since. But yeah. The moment Amazing. I got home, you've got to. You have to, you have to. <laughs> Is it weird seeing yourself on screen? Not anymore, no, I don't think. I think at the time, yes, but not, no, not anymore. Not anymore. You live with your boyfriend, Sam, from Maiden yes. Chelsea or Maiden Chelsea star. Who controls the remote in your household? Sam. Um, I don't know why I'm not surprised by that. Yeah, when we get into bed sometimes, he'll put on like Lord of the Rings. I really, I'm not into fantasy. Sometimes I wonder, like, we, we we do have very different interests, but it works. But I'm really not into like fantasy, um, Lord of the Rings. I don't mind a bit of Harry Potter, don't get me wrong. My cats are named after Harry Potter characters. I've got to like Harry Potter. But I'm just, I like something that I feel could be real. Fantasy... I just can't, like, it's a bit far-fetched. Okay, so far-fetched fantasy isn't your thing, but our quick fire round should help us get to the bottom of what you do like watching. I'm going to ask you a question, and then if you just respond with the first thing that comes to your head. Okay. Streaming or terrestrial TV? Streaming. Instagram or TikTok? Instagram. Silent watching or running commentary when you're watching TV? It's running commentary. TV snack and drink of choice. Okay, this is... <laughs> I'm going to sound so weird. My TV snack and drink. So my drink would probably be a Diet Coke. My snacks, I really like like medjool dates. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going really... <laughs> to... So lame. I'm so glad you let me have that insight into your life. That is bizarre. Yeah, so nice. <laughs> so yummy. Oh, um, dates. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, guilty pleasure TV. Towie. Oh, gosh. Okay, that's so good. Um, reality TV show you'd love to appear on. Keeping up with the Kardashians. <laughs> yes. Um, and favourite documentary maker. Stacey Dooley. I love Stacey Dooley. Or Louis Theroux. I actually went to an event last night. And I went on a Louis Theroux hunt. <laughs> Round, he was at a BBC event. And I was like, someone said, oh, Louis Theroux's here. And I said, I'm going to find him. And I'm going to tell him how big a fan I am. <laughs> and I walked around the whole event about five times. I couldn't find him. Oh, no. And so I was like, he's gone home. I was like, no. Oh, no. I must have just no missed good. him. You must have. He's also been on this podcast recently. No way. I want to throw it back now to your childhood. So you grew up in Essex. Yeah. Do you remember what your first TV memory was? First TV memory. Oh, goodness. I One of my first TV memories, I remember watching a film. I think it was called The Butterfly Effect. Um... I can't remember even what it was about, but I remember it re it was one of my first films that my parents had let me watch. Um, I can't remember what it was about. I think it was some kind of like drama, 
but it really stayed with me. And I remember it like changed my perspective on the world for a little bit, but I genuinely can't remember. I need to look it up. I can't remember what it was about. But that's probably my first TV memory. Sorry, it's a bit faint because that is my first ever memory. <laughs> was TV watching a kind of family thing? Did you sit down and watch TV a lot together? Yeah. I mean, obviously I have other TV memories like, you know, being four years old and watching the Teletubbies and stuff. Like I loved The Little Mermaid and stuff when I was younger. I used to lose my voice and I used to be like, can't speak. <laughs> my, I remember my mum made me a mermaid tail out of her old curtains. How very sweet. Oh, so sweet. That's so nice. I, know. I was really gutted when I grew out of it. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say TV is always like a really nice family thing. Like I don't really watch a lot of TV when I'm here at home, but when I go back to my family home in the evenings, it is a religious thing every evening. My mum and dad sit down in the living room and put on a film, a TV show, and I just I'm I'm there for the ride. Uh yeah. so yeah, they they um it's always a bit bit of a real family kind of together thing for us. I want to kind of get a gauge of what you were like as a teenager and I wondered when did you first get the idea of wanting to be on screen? Was it kind of a, a an exact moment or did it happen kind of later on? Um, I mean, to be honest, like I, I went through a lot when I was at school. I don't think I ever really saw myself as like the one who was going to, you know, put their head above the crowd and be like have the confidence to speak on issues that, you know, I've always been quite passionate and I've ab- about, you know, issues affecting young people and even when I was a teenager I went to work in government and I I did a lot of extra kind of stuff around educating young people and that was like on the side of my job I used to love going and into schools and and I actually created a work experience program for the government so young people could come in and just try and inject some life into you know inject some youth into the government and tell people how amazing it was um, cause I love my job, but that was probably, I would say the first time I really was like, oh, I really have the confidence to start speaking about issues that mean a lot to me. And I was really like, lucky in my job that I was able to, to, to really kind of work in, in that space, but still, you know, talk about issues that were affecting young people and, you know, um, career, I used to do like careers advice stuff. It w- always feels like it was meant to be for me, um, especially as a teenager, but I never really realized that it would translate to on an on-screen thing. Um, mm-hmm. I think like obviously hindsight is an amazing thing and you can be like, oh, I can now see what my path was meant to be. And I always believe like you you always go where you're meant to be in life. Um, and now I see that trajectory, but I don't think back then I really saw myself as being on screen. Obviously when Love Island came up, that was like an experience. And I thought that it was going to be as long or short as it could be. And I was planning on going back to my job after and just, you know, having a, you know, a nice, a nice, however long I was in there for. Um, and just being able to say I'd done it. But I never realized how far this could go. And I never really believed, I don't think if you told me a few years ago, this would be my career and my job, I don't think I'd have believed you. Yeah. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal. So why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. 
Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And it must have been strange. I kind of want to speak about the Love Island experience. So you worked as a policy advisor for the Department of Education, for yeah. those who don't know. And then you went into the villa what made you apply? Was it just to go and, and have a nice holiday, to have fun? Or were you just like, why not this experience has come along? Because it was kind of around then that it started to get really, really popular. I actually was scouted for the show. At the time, you know, now I think even if you get scouted, you have to apply. But I actually didn't have to go through an application process. So when I got scouted, I just kind of went with it. I, I actually initially said no. And then I was like, why Why am I saying no? And my mum and dad were like, why are you, like, just go for it. Like, why would you not go for it? It's an experience. Like, you never want to be laying on your, you know, in your old people's home when you're 80 years old and thinking, why the hell didn't I take that opportunity? So, my, you know, my, my mum and dad were always really, like, you know, saying, go, like, take opportunities. I think my dad, when he was younger, was a musician and there were a few opportunities he didn't take when he was younger and he regrets them even to this day so he's always very much like take opportunities when they come to you so I was like do you know what I'm going to go through the motions I'm going to go through this process of these interviews and if I don't get it I'm fine if I do get it cool like I actually really didn't mind either way I was like I'm very I love my job I'm very happy where I am so if, if it happens it happens and it just kind of did <laughs> a bit like what well, I actually got it and then before I knew it it was like you're you're going into the villa and and you're gonna be you're in the cast and it was almost just like a bit of a, a weird experience because it wasn't something I hinged anything on particularly or hinged my life on obviously I was excited if I got it or didn't get it but yeah it was um fascinating fascinating experience one of those things where it's like if you sometimes you have to just let let what will be will be you know and not not focus too much on on getting something and I I think that really taught me 
a lot about if it's meant for you, it will come for you. And I, I sound really like weird when I say things like that, but I really believe that a lot. It must be strange living in the villa, you're cut off from the outside world and then you re-emerge and discover that your life has completely changed. And I mean that in the sense of, you know, there's news headlines about you, your social media following must have catapulted overnight. Was it an overwhelming experience coming out of the villa? Um, was it overwhelming? I mean, I would say in a lot of ways, yes, but in a lot of ways, like my life stayed quite constant you know, I didn't particularly, I mean, obviously I made my friends from, from the show at the time, but you know, I still had all my school friends. I still lived at home with my mom for a long time. Um, and a lot of my life did stay quite constant, even though you have all these people like talking about you and messaging you and all these followers on social media and, you know, a lot of weird pressure that you never thought that you'd feel, but you kind of do. And all of that stuff my life state has still stayed quite constant around me. So I would say, yes, it was overwhelming. But when you've got like a good support system behind you, like you kind of share that with those that love you. Yeah. And I want to talk about now in 2019, you became part of the reality TV series on E4 Made in Chelsea, which was very much a series that marked my teenage years. How did that come about? And what was that experience like for you? Uh, the only reason that came about was because I think Sam had left the show um, briefly to work on something else. And when he was thinking about returning, him and I were dating. So he, it was, you know, Made in Chelsea, reality TV, it follows your life. So it would mm. be weird if I almost didn't take a step in that, you know, in that on that show because it wouldn't be reflective of his life. And obviously, you know, I, I was like, yeah, it sounds cool. Like I'd, I'd love to be a part of it. I'd actually never watched the show before in my life. I have actually watched a bit of it from the beginning now, but I had never watched the show before. I wasn't, it wasn't really something that me and my friends watched or spoke about. I, I, I knew it existed, but I, I'd never seen it. I think I'd seen it on the back, on in the background once at my friend's house and that was it so I really didn't know much about the show but I was like yeah why not like let's do it did it ever feel difficult or did you ever find it difficult having so much of your private life broadcast and I guess with that then if something goes wrong having so many people especially on social media chiming in with their opinion I think that when you are living out your the best parts of your life and the worst parts of your life on camera for a TV show, you have to be, you can't be under the illusion that that's not going to happen, that you're opening yourself up for that. And that is something you have to just accept because there's wonderful, amazing things that come from sharing your life. And there's also really hard things that come from sharing your life, but you know, it's a path that you choose. And it's just like oversharing culture that we're in at the moment, which my mum still finds really weird. Um, but she's like, I don't understand why people would want to talk about that on TV. And I'm like, well, I kind of do. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, it's kind of what we all do now. But, you know, I think that it's, um, it's a part of our culture. And you have to kind of accept that social media is there for people to share their opinions on things. Um, as long as they're not sinister, you know, threatening things, then people are very much entitled to their opinions. Um, 
And I think that's just something you accept. Like, I'm not going to be here and be saying, oh, it's awful, you know, me sharing my life on social media and people have the audacity to say horrible things about me because, unfortunately, I do... I don't think the world is as sunshine and rainbows as, as that. And I and I think it's something that I've learned. And part of sharing your life is uh, and your personal life is having to accept that you're opening up people to judge that. And that's kind of part of it. Yeah. I want to move on now to talk about your documentary. So you recently began making docs for the BBC. Your first was on revenge porn. Your second on uncovering rape culture. And now your third is on disordered eating. How did that opportunity come about and, and why did you want to start making documentaries? Um, so I've actually been making documentaries for, would you believe it, nearly three years now. Um, it just sounds like it, cause it's only been three films. Uh, yeah. And I've obviously been doing other bits and bobs as well. You know, I had my dating show, Love in the Flesh. Um, but I think that it, I mean, these these documentaries are like they are your heart and soul for a long time. Um, in the first instance, I shared my revenge porn story on, uh, I think, a radio show, and I and I was quite I was talking about it quite openly because it was in in the press and it was something that I wanted to break the stigma around. And um, yeah, it, how it usually works with with films is that you you partner with a production company and then you work up. The story, the idea, how how it would be made, how it would be structured, and then you take it to a channel. In my instance, it was the BBC, and they liked it and they commissioned it. And I think that it was such a disruptive film. And I think when you're going through the process and the motions of um, filming it, and Revenge Porn specifically took around a year to make. So when you're kind of doing lots of filming and you're experiencing so much it's a personal learning journey but then seeing that all come together and seeing all that learning compacted into one hour you're like wow this is like incredibly moving and it was my most like personal ever piece of work and quite quickly after I mean, we we even changed the law with that documentary, you know. I partnered with a charity called Refuge and we made it illegal to threaten to share images online. Um, so I, and that was just an amazing opportunity that came from the documentary and just shows, you know, how important that work is. And as soon as, I mean, to be honest, I would say the first month of filming Revenge Porn, I was like, I want to do this, like, forever. I want to keep making these films forever. Like, I could see even just like meeting contributors to the films, like these brave, amazing people. I just felt like I really connected with these people on such a level that I realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I I don't want to do the superficial influencing all the time as much as that is, you know, a really fun, creative, exciting part of, of my life. It's not, doesn't fulfill me in the way that making these films does. Yeah. And I want to, for listeners who perhaps haven't seen the documentaries, I'm just going to summarise what we've spoken about in previous interviews. So with each of your documentaries, you've opened up about your own experiences. So you were a victim of revenge porn mm-hmm. um, whilst a 14-year-old student at school and during your time on Love Island. You also discussed your own experience with sexual assault in your second documentary. And in Disordered Eating, you talk about how being trolled about your weight online impacted your relationship with food. 
How do you deal with unpicking your own experiences and choosing topics that are so close to home for you? You know, do you do you have to be careful about unpacking your own trauma? Um, I mean, definitely like within the first film, but um, revenge porn was really, really hard. But I think a disordered eating was a different kind of film because disordered eating wasn't it didn't come from my own experience with an eating disorder. Um, but what it came from actually was seeing other people battle and not know what they're battling with and why. Um, for me, my documentaries, I want to be reactive and I've got a very unique insight where I can, you know, when you have a lot of social media, like a big social media presence, you can kind of see and understand what people how what the temperature is what people are battling with what people are going through because they message you they talk about it you see things posted everywhere like but you can still also get like as I say with like a large amount of followers means a large amount of messages and often that's people sharing their stories with me because of my previous films and for me you know especially with disordered eating um as I say, you know, I don't have an experience with an eating disorder, but what happened to me was that, you know, I experienced a, a, a kind of pressure to, to look a certain way. And even though that had a positive outcome for me, for most, it actually has a really negative one. And I, I quickly recognized that I was in a real minority of like, you know, in that space and so many young people are going through bad relationships with themselves and food and exercise. And it's something that I wanted to look into. But what I'll say on kind of the, you know, unpacking traumatic experiences, again, it's something for me that comes with the job. Um, It's something that obviously I don't take lightly, but I don't ever want to, you know, I don't ever want to make it about me because I am even though revenge porn was about my story, I had so many incredible, brave young women speak to me in that film. So I think that when you're unpacking traumatic experiences of your own, you know, it's definitely tough, but I don't ever want to take away from the incredible contributors in the films because they are so brave and so wonderful to share that with me. So... You know, it's sometimes not easy, especially coming home from a long day of filming and someone has shared a really, really personal story with you. But the best thing that I think I can do is just provide as much support in that moment as I possibly can. And, you know, we provide support afterwards to those people. And, you know, I always have someone to talk to as well. Like I, you know, sometimes I need to unload what I've heard that day and, you know, I talk to my my partner or I talk to my mom or my dad or my brother or my best friend. You know, I give her a call and just like chat to her about what I've seen that day because sometimes you need to process it yourself. So, yeah, and I think that sometimes though, at the end of the day, it's easy to 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 feel really sad and disheartened by the things that you hear and what people are going through as well. But it's all for the greater good. The film in the end is going to make a change and hopefully going to help people. And that's that's all you can really kind of hope for. 
Yeah. In your most recent documentary, you know, as you've acknowledged, you have a very large social media following and are very much looked up to by a young female audience. And in this documentary, as well as deep diving into disordered eating, you also go on a personal journey looking at how your own career as an influencer impacts conversations around body image and health. And there's a reply you receive online, which you read pretty early on in the documentary that says, how can someone that's part of this problem run a documentary like this? What have you learned from making this documentary? I mean, I think that to, to read those comments to start with, I felt a bit disheartened and sad because I was like, I'm actually trying to do something good. Like I'm aware that I could be part of the problem, but it, that's that's the whole point of making this film is to look, to examine that. But then I couldn't be too upset because I was like, no one actually really knows how I you know, the journey I plan on going and the changes I want to make um, just by seeing one one small post about it. So for me, I guess there is that personal element, that personal journey of like discovering what it means to be a responsible influencer. And I think that sometimes it's hard because if you've not been through an eating disorder or any kind of issue like that, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is going through that and has gone through that and think what would impact them and what may trigger them. Because if you don't have those triggers yourself, it's really hard to put yourself in those shoes. So for me, it was about going on a personal journey of like learning about how my social media could have affected someone else. Even if something was posted it completely innocently by me with no, you know, no sinister note to it how that could actually have an effect on someone else. And and I think a massive thing I learn as well, the main takeaway I have is always ask yourself what you're posting for. Like, why are you posting something? Are you posting it because, you know, what I eat in a day, for example, are you posting it because you want someone to congratulate you and say, well done, you're, you're eating so healthy. But then what do you achieve from that? Because my gratification actually from getting some you know positive reinforcement from social media is incomparable to you know the the suffering you could cause someone if their eating disorder is triggered by that so you know I think that there's there's a lot to be learned in this film and I really hope that it can create some kind of blueprint for influencers when posting any kind of like food and fitness and body based content. I'm not saying no one should ever post a bikini photo ever again. And I'm not saying no one should ever post a cooking video ever again and show what you've made for dinner. Like that is not what I'm saying and would ever do myself because I think there's something so beautiful about openness on social media, but also it's knowing just where that line is. Yeah. And we live in an age now where people's lives are curated. And I think something that's really interesting about the documentary is you really lift a lid on how Instagram as an influencer works. You know, it's not a candid picture. There's hundreds taken um, to get one, one post. And we're in an era now where perhaps more than ever, we're defined by our aesthetic, you know, where how we look is tied into our own sense of worth. How much do you think social media has played a part in the increase in eating disorders that we're seeing? I mean, I think it's played a massive part, no doubt. Um, Mainly because constantly on social media, no matter who you are in a minute, no matter how many followers you have, you're always going to compare yourself. 
Um, and I'm not saying that wouldn't happen in everyday life anyway. You know, I think that we are all guilty of comparing ourselves to someone else, whether it's a, a really, you know, a girl with a beautiful body that we've seen on the other side of the bar. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she looks amazing. And I wish I looked like that. You know, we've all done that since time began. But this is just an amplified, constantly in front of your face version of that. So... I think that it's played a massive part. I think that the oversharing, as great as it is in a lot of ways, it's meant that people are forced to compare themselves to other people, what other people are eating, how much they're working out, you know, what their diet's like, what their day structure is like, what their body's like, you know, what they look like in a bikini, how tan they are, how big their boobs are, how big their bum is, how small their waist is. Like people are constantly forced to compare themselves to someone else it's in front of your face it's an it's a bit of an unnatural thing so I definitely think that it's contributed to eating disorders like we know that social media doesn't cause eating disorders but it isn't an exacerbating factor in one developing yeah and something that you pick up in the documentary which was really terrifying was you kind of create this anonymous account on TikTok as in it's not got an, a pre-registered algorithm and you type in something like healthy living and then almost immediately it kind of opens up this dangerous rabbit hole of other suggested searches which could definitely play into some more worrying content. How do you think we should be protecting ourselves from becoming prey to, to that content? What's really hard I think is at the moment, you have to take that responsibility on yourself. So for me, just personally, my TikTok is really locked down. I'm always updating my preferences. I'm always letting TikTok know. If you hold down on a post, you can say, you can select to see less of this or say you don't like it. So that it kind of removes it from your algorithm. But at the moment, the responsibility is really on you. Um, I believe that the system is smart enough to know what we do like. Uh, should be smart enough to know what we shouldn't be looking at too and smart enough to know what we don't like. You shouldn't have to, to tell it everything and spell it out. So I really hope for a more comprehensive system where the, the damaging content can be weeded out a lot quicker and a lot more effectively than it is. I mean, it's actually really something that really shocked me in the film I think was seeing the pro anorexia content that's out there the pro eating disorder content I had no idea that someone would actually want to develop an eating disorder or there'd be a promoting developing eating disorders like that just didn't even cross my mind because in my mind anorexia is an illness that someone doesn't want to develop but seeing this kind of content made me realize that the illness can be so strong, it almost wants to project out and it wants to go on social media. Like I see it as another voice that's like a really dangerous voice that wants that person to almost put it on social media and spread it like a bit, like a bit of a, you know, a virus in a way. It's, it's really, really scary. Um, but I found that content very quickly because people are becoming really good at hiding that content the the word anorexia and other eating disorders the word itself is blocked so if you try and search it it's blocked and it refers you to an eating disorder charity but if you change a few of the characters around where people have been you know people have been really clever in trying to mask the content you know swapping an a for a four because it looks similar you find that really quickly and really easily and 
if I can find it that quickly, then I would hope that the social media platforms can too. But I think it's interesting as well, because I do think we put a lot of blame on social media companies. And of course, they need to be playing their part. But we should also be taking responsibility on ourselves to protect ourselves. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, the first thing I say is update your preferences. If you're seeing something that you think could be damaging, you know, or you think, you know, is triggering you, tell Instagram, tell TikTok you don't like this content, tell them because they have a feature. Um, I think that, you know, parents should also definitely be monitoring their, their, their child's social media. It's like sending them out into a world with a blindfold. That's how I see it. It's like sending them on a busy road with a blindfold. It's really dangerous. You know, they, they, they don't know which way is left or right. They can't see, they can't see where they're going and they don't know what's coming. Um, so I think that parents need to be, you know, I, I'm, I'm not one for saying you shouldn't allow your child to have social media, um, because I think that that can cause more harm than good, uh, by making them, feel different from other people and their peers but there's also something to be said for really monitoring that and those accounts and and updating the preferences for your child and making sure it's a much more lockdown streamlined account and and controlling the algorithm as much as you can something that i think your documentaries do really well is sexual assault revenge porn disordered eating are all slightly taboo subjects and and I don't mean as in people can't talk with their friends about it but they're subjects that people might feel a certain shame and I don't I don't think rightly I don't think that that is deserved shame I think it's impressed shame but people can find it really difficult to talk out about these things and they're incredibly sensitive and they're incredibly personal and I think what you've done a really good job at is is breaking down those taboos especially for a younger audience who will be finding your work who'll be looking at this work and thinking actually I can have these conversations with my family I can have these conversations with my friends I can speak out what I want to know is what's next for you? You know, are there any other topics that you're like, I really want to get to the bottom of this? I have so many topics that I want to get to the bottom of. I mean, for me, the way I see my career and I hope my career will go is, is basically just being reactive. I think, as I said earlier, being able to check the temperature and being able to, to actually really engage with my followers. Like I, think that it's such a unique thing and it's so new to be able to actually say to your audience what do you want to see what can I look into next what do you need help with what conversations are you struggling with you know if you're a teacher what are you struggling to talk to your students about what are they battling if you're a parent you know what what issues are you facing with your child like having being reactive is something that like I really see myself being in the future as, as a presenter and a filmmaker and a documentary maker um, and being a part of a, creating a film that is tailored to, to the to kind of society and what they what they need and what young people are needing and what parents and adults and everyone's needing really and taboo subjects that are definitely you know where where it lies for me because they're the ones that are the most difficult but I think that for me they're the most um, fulfilling to tell because they're stories that people haven't told yet and are too scared to tell. Mm. I'm massively looking forward to what you deep dive into in your next documentary. Zara, thank you so much for coming on the show. It has been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun. Thank you. 
Before we bring this week's episode to a close, I just wanted to thank all of the listeners who have taken the time to write into us with their comments and feedback. As always, we can't wait to hear from you, so do email us on podcast at radiotimes.com. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode, and please do leave us a rating and review. If you or someone you know have been affected by eating disorders, the following organisations may be able to help. Beat, Eating Disorders Association and I and the NHS.